welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Kaylee Frett, senior editor here at Velo News, sitting across the table from Trevor Connor, our longtime training columnist. The purpose of this podcast is simple, to make you a better, faster, fitter bike rider. And today we're covering a big question. What makes a pro a pro? Is it physiology or mental strength or something else entirely? We'll talk to retired pros Carter Jones and Chris Baldwin, as well as Cannondale Drapak's team doctor, Kevin Reichlin, to get some answers. But first, since this is the first Fast Talk podcast, who are we? Let me tell you about Trevor. Trevor writes the training columns in every issue of News and has a master's in exercise, bioenergetics, and nutrition. Say that five times fast. He also raced for more than a decade on the North American Pro Circuit and was a manager of development team Rio Grande, which has sent numerous riders to the pro ranks. In short, he knows what he's talking about, physiology, and the bike racing. And let me tell you a little bit about Kaylee. Kelly is an editor at Velo News, and he has covered five Tour de France's, six Giro's, the Olympics, and just about anything that involves a bike. He writes many of the stories that you read on velonews.com. Can't tell you how often I'm out for a ride and somebody says, hey, did you see that article? And I get to say, yeah, I know that guy. Uh, he likes to say in a former life he was a Cat 1 roadie and a pro mountain biker, though he can still rip it up with the best of them here in Boulder. And he definitely knows what he's talking about. And if he doesn't, the great thing about Kaylee is he has access to all the pros and all the coaches out there who can tell him. That is very much part of my job as a reporter is not knowing answers and finding people who do. And that's a big part of this podcast. What Kaylee and I were really excited to bring to you is we go and talk to these pros. We talk to these top coaches. We talk to these physiologists. In the course of researching these articles for you, we have these amazing conversations. We see all these amazing things behind the scenes. And then when we finally get down to our computer, we're you have two pages, and as much as we work to really bring to you the best article we can bring, we always sometimes leave it with, oh, we wish the listeners could have heard that conversation. That really motivated this podcast. Doing this in an audio format, we can actually bring to you some of these interviews that we've had, some of these conversations that we had. The whole story, so to speak. So our goal here is to take you inside some of the burning questions. And to that end, let's make you faster. Why are we not professional cyclists? What makes them so much better? That is the question we're trying to answer this week. And with that, I turn it over to to Trevor to give us at least a bit of a synopsis and, a, and an overview of sort of the main reasons why they are so much better than we are. Yeah, so Kayla and I both have real here of why aren't we pros? We think it's all about numbers. We think it's all about what you can do on Strava, but there is actually a much more complex answer to this question that involves physiology, involves luck, involves who you know, willing you are to live this lifestyle. So let's uh, address a few of these sides. So, you know, your average amateur bike racer at this point probably has a power meter or has it you know tested themselves on one at some point is there a number where you know if you, if you hit five and a half watts per kilo for half an hour you're you're guaranteed a pro contract does that exist yeah i mean the the numbers are important and there are certainly numbers that get floated around there when they talk about threshold if you want to be top in the the world 
uh, right around 6.5 watts per kilogram is, is the right number. And I don't have a calculator in front of me, but if you take your kind of average 160-pound rider, that, that's a pretty high number. That's up over 400 watts. Another number that often that's actually thrown out a lot at the very highest level, but you don't hear at lower levels, but is actually very important, especially for events like the Tour de France, is the sustainable wattage. What wattage you hold at what's called your aerobic threshold, which we'll hopefully cover in another podcast. Um, and that's 4.5 watts per kilogram. Again, for that 160-pound rider, we're talking around 300 watts, 3 to 320 watts. What's important about that number is that's what you can sustain for four or five hours. So you want to be in the Tour de France, you need to be able to ride at 300, 320 watts for the length of an entire stage, which for most of us amateurs is, that's your threshold. That's what you can do for 20, 30 minutes. If you're um, good. I, I mean, 320, you can be a cat one on 320 watts. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So they are impressive numbers, but if you talk to a lot of pros, they really hit their peak numbers very early on in their careers and long before they hit top pros. So it wasn't those numbers that set them as pros. We caught up with Carter Jones, a former pro with Giant Alpeson and a rider with a physiology background, a degree from CU in fact, to ask him about the way his physiology differs from amateurs and how that affects the way he trains versus the way we train. I mean, so the first thing that came to mind is repeatability of efforts, you know, at you know LT or above LT, and being able to do those efforts later in races. Um, you know, we're talking a year-to-year development type thing here, where you know it's kind of interesting if you look over my files. You know, back when I was 19 or 20, I was still doing you know relatively similar, you know, 10-minute power, 20-minute power, but you know now it's I can do that at the end of a race, or I could do that you know two or three times. And so that's, that's been the big, big difference in my progression. But, you know, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, I go out and do a 20-minute test and I can climb with Chris Room or whatever. And it's like, uh, you know, you got to do that after so many days and that far into a race. And, like, there's so many variables that you can't account for. Well, so, I mean, VO2 max is relatively fixed genetically. You obviously can manipulate it, you know, with your weight. You know, it is, it is trainable, but once you're at an elite level, you're kind of stuck with what you got. Um, yeah. So you can't really worry about that. You know, it's like I haven't done a VO2 max test in oh, probably five years, and I don't ever plan on doing one again unless I'm forced to. So, I mean, the LT is definitely the uh, the biggest indicator of fitness, and, you know, that's the most, most trainable. So, yeah, definitely what I would say I focus most of my most of my training on, you know, in terms of building it through long endurance days or LT efforts or you know, obviously then you do get into the race-specific stuff. So what did set them as pros? You said it was the ability to ride that, that sort of 80% for four or five hours? Is that the... Is that so the that's... Difference? Yeah, actually, that one is really key when you're talking about the numbers. And that's actually really the uh, 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 an overall theme. There has been a lot of research, a lot of studies out there put out about, you know, what makes, makes a top-level pro uh, cyclist. It's not VO2 max. It's not max power. You can train it a bit, not a lot. Same thing with the short peak wattages, what you can put out for five seconds for a minute. That you hit really early on. So there were really three things that they saw that separated out top pros. First and most critical one was what sort of level could they sustain? 
And what you see in top pros is they can sustain something very, very close to their max level. So max level doesn't change, but, but what they can hold gets really close to that. So if you take an amateur rider, you measure their threshold power, it's going to be 75, maybe 80% of their, their VO2 max wattage. In a world-class time trialer, they can go for an hour at 95% of their VO2 max. So their threshold and their VO2 max are really, really close to one another. So that sustainable five-hour power gets up much closer to their max, and their threshold gets up much closer to their max. The other changes you see that you wouldn't think too much about is their, their energy utilization where amateurs will very quickly start relying purely on carbohydrates. Even getting up over threshold, you're going to see pros still using fat for fuel. Fat's unlimited, so they can sustain those power levels longer. Last one, which we'll get to at another point, and we're not going to talk much about today, is what's called neuromuscular recruitment, just their ability to use all their muscles better in sync. So what it really comes down to is what separates the pros physiologically is this ability to sustain very, very high wattages. And their, their max wattages, not really that important or not as important. They did a really interesting study where they, they managed to get all the, the numbers for Pierre Roland from when he was just coming up in the junior ranks to when he was top 10 at the Tour de France. And they saw the same thing again. You know, his short wattages, his what can he do for five seconds? What can he do for one minute? He hit all those numbers as a junior, and they really didn't change very much all the way up to where he was a top pro. The numbers, the, the, the things that they saw change in him were his more sustainable numbers. What could he hold for four or five hours? The other big change they saw in him was just this increasing volume of work and training stress. There's a score called the TSS, training stress score. And you can do a kind of a weekly average, or you can look at the training stress for each ride. They really looked at his weekly training stress and saw that that went up and up and up. So he was beating up his body more and more each week. And consistently from when he was a junior to a very high level, his training stress went up and his volume of training went up over 100%. And they also found later on as a top pro, he had a lot more weeks with just extremely high training stress that wasn't sustainable. Where when he was a junior, He'd only have a few weeks that he felt, you know, that, that week beat me up. You know, we think of those as like training camps. I just couldn't sustain that. Something a lot of people don't think about but is really important is support. These pros are, as we talked about, they're putting out this huge training stress that can really beat them up. But they have a team of, at the highest levels, they have coaches, physiologists, massage therapists, doctors. They're checking them regularly, making sure they're handling the training and, and helping them with the recovery. People are trying to go pro themselves who have a full-time job and, and don't have the money for these re sorts of resources. You can't handle the same sort of training stress because you don't know when you're starting to fatigue yourself and you don't have the people telling you when to back down or, or helping you to get through it. And that is a really important factor. Pros like Pierre Roland can handle a lot more training than we can handle. That's clear. But that makes them somewhat vulnerable too. We caught up with Cannondale Draft Pack team doctor, Kevin Reichlin, who explained why. <laughs> I, I often say that the, the pro cyclists are enigmas in that as long as they stay within their plane of, 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 uh, of biomechanics, they can handle a volume of training that would just, you and I would get tendonitis or muscle issues, all kinds of stuff. However, the difference is you and I, 
if you if, if we suddenly let's see where our seat post drops two millimeter or your cleat comes slightly loose you and I are fine whereas they're a disaster because they're so highly trained within this very specific plane of biomechanical existence does, does that make sense yeah, yeah. So, so do they need more uh, cross training or is that just the way that they are sort of naturally so I would say for a pro no you want them to be strong in that plane of biomechanical existence is that the healthiest thing for you or me or my patients I would rather see you cross train but then you're taking away that said uh, to, to the guys that I work with closely in the off season I ask them to do a small amount of cross training just to get their bodies ready for the possible crash the possible biomechanical irregularity that can creep up with the cleat that comes loose so that they have a little bit of reserve not but I don't recommend much because again I want them to training to be in that biomechanical plane so you deal with these guys on a pretty regular basis uh, <laughs> often when they are not on their best not at their best I should say is there anything else that you notice that sort of makes them slightly different from the rest of us that you can think of I think they get even so the first thing I would say is they get so frustrated when they know that they're not at their best when they could be because their experience of being at their best is so much higher than you and me and so it's so frustrating for them to just be even a couple of watts down they can feel it so that's one thing I see as a difference another another thing I see as a difference and I say this in my after whatever 11 12 years of working with these guys if I tell a pro athlete to take time off the bike they'll do it if I tell an amateur wannabe to take time off the bike they frequently won't that's one thing those guys get if the doc says they got to take off they will take off they don't like it but they will listen to us amateur wannabes won't I'm not kidding all right so we're talking about what like what what are the actual physiological differences between them and us I mean are they are they just that much more efficient what are the differences internally that are allowing them to maintain that that super high level for four and a half hours so this is a thing that's kind of simultaneously optimistic and really depressing these changes what you really see that 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 allows pros um, to have this huge sustainability to be able to put out these huge numbers very close to their max for a long time is trainable which is fantastic the depressing side of it is it's not just going out and doing some intervals for for six weeks and getting super strong certainly interval work you can't win races without it but those changes peak out pretty quick. What makes pros different? What separates them? One of the, the bigger ones is this change in efficiency. This is this whole idea of how much power can you put out for every liter of oxygen that you consume. And this is one of the things you really see improve in pros over an extended period of time. Because what happens is you can't improve really how much oxygen you can consume so be better at using that oxygen. And that's basically the definition of efficiency. And what a lot of studies have seen is that does improve in pros, but you're talking five to 10 years to see those sort of improvements. The other things that you see change, you see improvements in, in the capillary density around muscles so that the muscle, you can have better oxygen delivery to those working muscles. And another really big one is you see a shift in our fiber ratios. Um, so everybody talks about the, the importance of, of slow-twitch muscle fibers. Slow-twitch fiber muscles, um, they don't fatigue and they are more efficient. So for a cyclist, you, you want a lot of those. 
um, and you want a higher ratio of those. And with a, a lot of training, those do actually transition. So in top pros, you're going to see a, a higher ratio. Again, genetics plays in there. If you have born with very low ratio of slow twitch muscle fibers, probably enter world's strongest men contests, go be a football player, don't try to, to race with the Tour de France. I mean, we should clarify, like, even a guy like Mark Cavendish in sort of the grand scheme of athletes is probably does not have all that much fast twitch, right? Because he has, still has to ride for six hours first. You know, you compare him to Usain Bolt and they're going to be, like, completely different. Well, right? even in the cycling world, I mean, yeah, Cavendish, from my understanding is, I mean, he peaks out around 1,600 watts. Mm. So he's the fastest sprinter after six hours of racing. But when they put him up against a track sprinter, it's not even a contest. Right. If what you're saying is correct, and I can essentially change my muscle fiber composition to look more like what it should look like to be a pro cyclist, then how many years is it going to take for me to turn myself into a slow twitch pro cycling god? So that's the really depressing side. So the cool thing is, yeah, you can cause these transitions. You can improve efficiency. Your VO2 max is not a death statement. You can transition the, these fiber ratios to much more of what a cyclist wants to see. The, the downside is it takes five to 10 years and it's not just doing an hour a day of intervals. It takes big, big volume to do that and that's why you see the pros out training 20 to 30 hours a day and, and we'll have this this a week sorry <laughs> that would be cool if they did that a day um there are gains that you get from big volume and this is one of them they're just not immediate gains and, and that's what you have to do to hit the highest level and again you saw that with the study in Pierre Roland, what consistently increased each year as he got to where he's top 10 in the Tour de France is this increasing training stress score every week. And the biggest factor in training stress is lots of time at these sub-threshold or, or threshold intensities. Right, which is all well and good unless you have like a job and then you pretty much just give up. Yep, yeah. so you want to be a pro, <laughs> give up your job, Get divorced, sell your kids, go out and kids. train 20, 30 hours a week. Otherwise, good luck. I had a chance to catch up with Chris Baldwin, former two-time national champion who now coaches here in Boulder at Day-to-Day -Day Coaching. Chris coaches athletes all the way from top pros down to new amateur riders. And while Chris believes we can hit a high level on very limited volume, to hit the highest levels, he has a lot to say about the need for big volume training and its effects on training stress. The biggest factor in the training stress algorithm is volume. It's time uh, on the bike. It's really hard. You know, you can make up for some of that with intensity and, and, and structure, but really you're looking at a set amount of training stress that a, that a limited time athlete has to work with, whereas a pro can, can do the 30-hour weeks to, you know, hit a higher peak. So absolutely. So with a 9-to-5-er, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in, in aerobic adaptations as being the foundation for successful cyclist and those adaptations are extremely time consuming there's a few ways a few shortcuts and a few ways to expedite the process but building ftp building mitochondrial density and, and capillary density and these things they don't happen quickly and it just gets harder and harder for a time-limited athlete to, to truly change as an athlete it's whereas a pro can you know, build those things 
So let's talk genetics a little bit. I mean, there's... We all like to think that if we worked hard enough, you know, American Dream style, uh, that we could turn into a professional rider. I mean, in a sentence, is that true? I mean, is there sort of a genetic predisposition? Taylor Finney is the one that comes to my mind, right? You know, two phenomenal world-class parents and lo and behold, he gets on a bike and a year later, he's a world-class athlete. That would seem to suggest more nature than nurture. You know, that's one... I've really done an about face on that one. Um, so I'll, I'll give you my, my addendum on this, that look, you want to be, you want to win the Tour de France, you want to be a Chris Froome. Yeah, genetics are a big part of it. That being said, when we're talking about going pro, yeah, what I used to always hear when I completely believed was the expression, um, the most important thing in cycling is picking your parents right. Over years of working with athletes and, and, and seeing athletes hit the top level, I've seen a ton of guys who go, they have the genetics and they go nowhere. Other guys that have very mediocre genetics and actually go really far in the sport. I mean, I have an old teammate, Rob Britton, in his early days when he was training at the center with me, riders at the center were telling him, you should quit. You have no potential in this sport. Last year, he was the top stage racer in North America. So I have really taken an about face in all this and said, well, you need genetics for the highest level. You can go very far in this sport just with how you train with some luck and a lot of other factors that we'll talk about. I, I look at the people that, that we used to race with. A little bit of backstory. Trevor and I raced together at uh, in college and for a couple of years were sort of you know mentors for when, when new students would show up and race in, in this men's C's and women's B's and things like that. And, you know, you, you'd get kids that would show up and just be actually pretty darn good considering they just got on a bike and then you'd have other kids that would spend all four years racing in the men's seas and, and just sort of didn't seem to matter how hard they were going to work but you're saying that it it's a bit of both that maybe there you know that there is a genetic component but you can work your way past some of it maybe is that is, is that accurate yeah i think it, i think it's a it's a whole interesting mix and and you're a great example of that because look you frustrate the hell out of me You'll take a month off the bike, I'll train my butt off, and then we'll go out for a ride, and, and you'll be super strong going up a climb, and it drives me nuts. <laughs> if I took a month off a bike and we went out for a ride, you'd probably bring a tricycle out just so that we'd match pace. But the same thing, when we were racing together at CSU, that's another good example. You, you won a lot of races, and, and you had a lot of results, and I attribute that as much, if not more, to having a lot of other assets, particularly race smarts. Have you ever known anybody who had the the engine and just couldn't get out of their own way and never won anything <laughs> i've seen it a hundred times and i'm not sure any of those people are going to appreciate me given their name so I'll, I'll keep this anonymous so again since it's our first podcast for any of you who don't know i used to manage a a amateur team called team rio grande which was a, a development squad um, and our goal is to really get athletes to the the top level to get them up into the pro ranks. And, and the team had a lot of success over its 13 years. So obviously one of our biggest names was TJ Van Garderen came through the program. Um, but I can give you a, a lot of other names. And for every TJ that we saw on the team, there were there were five guys who had a ton of potential and, and unfortunately never hit those ranks. And in particular, we had, again, I'll leave them anonymous, we had one rider on the team who unbelievably gifted rider should have been getting top five at the tour de france used to beat tj as a junior but when it came to race time when it came to going to events 
I had to pack his bag the night before races. He was eating Twizzlers for dinner and pizza for breakfast before races and not putting together the race strategy and we could never get him out of the amateur ranks. So the other important point here is that there are many things you can train if you're willing to put in the time and effort. But at the end of the day, there's also luck, which is, you know, did you win the race when the guy who might hire you was there to see it? And then the fact that breaking in to that pro lifestyle is incredibly difficult. Generally, the first couple years are going to be terrible, even if you're a big talent and you manage to jump, you know, straight to a world tour team. One of the things that, that's really painful to see is guys that are riders that put in all the time that have the genetics and they still don't make it because of all these other factors that are involved. And, and one of them is, frankly, this is not a glamorous lifestyle. When we traveled to races, you, you stayed in host housing. You were often on mats on the floor. People had to keep up jobs. So they're going and doing a five-hour pro race. And then in the evenings, they're trying to get their work done. It's sitting in... Kayla can talk about this. It's sitting in vans driving 28 hours and then vans. trying to race the next day. <laughs> well, and the reality is it doesn't... like. In ways it gets better, but in a lot of ways it doesn't get better. I've now covered five Tours de France as a reporter, and we see the hotels that these guys get put in. And even, I mean, there is no special dispensation for, you know, the leader of the Tour de France, as crazy as that sounds. If Chris Froome is leading the Tour de France, he still gets put in whatever hotel Sky's put in that night. And it might be a two-star, terrible, terrible, crappy hotel next to the highway and... I mean, that's why those teams started doing things like bringing their own RVs. It's not a glamorous lifestyle, even all the way up to the very top of the sport. One of the, the talks I used to give every year at Rio, one of the first talks, is just to, and, and I didn't want to be discouraging, but just give these guys an idea of, of what was involved. And I said, look, here's the sort of commitment you have to do. It's, we talk about 20, 25 hours a, a week on the bike, but then there's also 10 hours a week off the bike of stretching, core, weights. Then there's recovery time. And so the time you're dedicating to your cycling is 60 plus hours a week. And then a lot of these guys have to hold down a job as well. That's your life. You don't have time for anything else. You get to the races. They are hard. You're going to crash. You're going to bandage yourself up and then get back into the race the next day. And all this, all this is completely unreasonable. This is demands that shouldn't be placed on you. If you're lucky, you get that pro contract where you're making $6,000 a year. <laughs> so if yeah. that's what I say to them is if you're doing this for the money and the glamour, leave now. If you're doing this for love of the sport, absolutely. This is a fantastic sport. This is a unique sport that I think is more exciting than a, a lot of other sports out there. And it's one of the hardest sports out there. So to me, it should have one of the highest levels of accomplishment. But it is unreasonable what's expected of you to be a pro. And this is all factors in. It's not just strength. So we'll end each of these episodes with a couple concrete take-homes as best we can. And they're less concrete in this particular podcast than they will be in subsequent episodes. But uh, there are a couple things that we can walk away with after all this discussion of physiology and genetics and luck and terrible vans and all the rest. Yeah, so I think there's a, you know, we don't have any concrete go-do-these-intervals take-homes for this one, but I think there's some really interesting take-homes. And the first one, if you're really thinking about, hey, I want to go pro, the positive and the negative. Positive is I don't think genetics is the, the definer of whether you can go pro. 
I think it is if you want to win the Tour de France, but I think anybody can hit the pro ranks. The downside is you have to be willing to live that lifestyle. You have to be put, willing to put in the time, the sweat, and the sacrifice, which is bigger in this sport than in most sports. I think another key take home here is don't necessarily just look at Strava to determine who should be pro and who shouldn't. It's not those peak numbers. Those aren't really what differentiate you. And if you want to train your ability to race at that level, what you have to start working is that sustainable power. What can you hold for long periods of time? And it's your max values aren't going to go up that much. So it's getting your threshold really up close to your max. And it's getting that five hour uh, aerobic threshold power really up high. To be in the pro ranks, you have to be, you have to have that of what a lot of people would think of it as their, their time trial threshold. Um, and the way you train that, volume is a big factor. You have to do a lot of these longer rides at that aerobic threshold, which is about 80% of your max. But be careful. If it's your first year cycling, those rides are really damaging, really fatiguing. You have to train for a while before you can even start doing that sort of training. That has been Fast Talk. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.